Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This episode is brought to you through the generous contributions of a few listeners, Matt, Mark, and Steve. Now today, the nominations for the podcast awards are opening up. The more nominations we get, the better chance we have of becoming a finalist, which would be pretty exciting and could also increase the visibility of the show. So if you'd like to nominate us for Best Educational Podcast, you can do so over at podcastawards.com. So if you're interested in doing that, I'd really appreciate it. Okay, so we've been getting pretty deep into the weeds and have been getting farther and farther from a coherent story. On the one hand, the culture is the story, but on the other hand, it's hard to get attached to a story when you forget who we're talking about and the people involved. So I thought that right now would be a good time to tell a story about a few communities that were living in the early post-Roman era. After all, I've been spending a lot of time telling you how things weren't as bad as you might imagine, so I might have given you the impression that things were fine. They weren't, especially in the early parts. People were sick, their lives were bleak, and it was a scary and violent time to be alive. That isn't to say that people in the Roman era, especially the poor, were happy and healthy. It looks like they were in pretty dire straits as well when compared to their Iron Age kin. But I think it's important to put some of this stuff into context and remember that while things weren't necessarily as awful and culturally devoid as people might imagine, things were pretty rough especially in the early parts. Now, it's been a very long time since we've discussed the events, or rather what little we know of the events, following the complete withdrawal of Rome. So here's a quick refresher. You'll probably recall that Britain was dealing with some rather severe raids, and according to legend, they turned to Germanic mercenaries for assistance. And then, due to an argument over payment of those same mercenaries by a tyrant named Vortigern, the mercenaries went on a rampage, and you had this period of enormous amount of unrest, and eventually there was fighting back that culminated in the Battle of Mount Baden. We don't know a lot of what happened to the local population during this period. Sure, we have Gildas painting a fire and brimstone image, but like we've spoken about earlier, he really wasn't a historian. If he lived today, we'd probably see him on a street corner with a tinfoil hat. So we had this big gap to deal with. And that's where the Hillford and Somerset comes in. Before the Romans, Britons had a long tradition of hill forts and what Caesar referred to as oppida. And the archaeological record indicates that the Romanization of Britannia and the efforts to crush the indigenous culture weren't entirely complete. We can surmise that because it looks like some of the Britons retreated to essentially the same defensive structures of their ancestors, including the one at Cadbury Hill. And this wasn't a minor hill fort. It had multiple ridges and was pretty enormous. How big? Well, it contained about eight and a half acres. In fact, it was so enormous that it's been theorized that it might have been the historical site that led to the legend of Camelot. It was pretty big. Not only that, but this wasn't a new site for a hill fort. Based on archaeological finds, it's almost certainly the original site for an Iron Age fort, and it looks like the hill was settled for much longer than that, probably thousands of years. So following the withdrawal of Rome, and the island being racked with raids and probably internal unrest, it looks like some of the Britons turned to the homes of their ancestors and took refuge in the fortifications that had long been abandoned. From the shards of pottery and other relics that we've found, it's believed that the site was occupied by Britons, probably seeking shelter from the violence of the era. And that would make sense, really. The former Romano-British, now just British, would be able to use the over eight acres of land to protect their families, their livestock, and their homes. It was a natural choice when you think about it. 
and it seems like they arrived with as many of their possessions as they could carry, much like refugees. And what's been found so far gives us an image of a community that is still struggling to hold on to their culture and technology. For example, the walls were reinforced with salvaged Roman stone. They produced pottery in the Romano-British style, and they even had some glass on hand. Though most of their possessions in the early part would have been things that they brought with them or salvaged. Maybe they were family possessions handed down throughout the generations, much like heirlooms. Or maybe they were useful items that they looted from the wreckage left behind from battles and atrocities of the era. It's even been argued that some of the possessions brought into this community came from a more grisly and honestly Halloween-y source. Grave robbing. And I suppose that in times of crisis, the reverence attached to a cremation urn probably would vanish in light of the need for something to reliably carry water. So these cremation urns might have just been water jugs during this period. And imagine the cultural and emotional fallout of that. Cemeteries were purposefully kept from the population centers in Roman times. But during the collapse, you see people being buried inside town walls, and even evidence that suggests grave robbing. The desperation of the people must have been extreme to lead to such a change in behavior. And it must have been heartbreaking, humiliating, and quite possibly terrifying. Don't forget that these people were quite superstitious. And even in today's modern era, people get the heebie-jeebies when dealing with the houses of the dead. Anyway, regardless of where the items came from, it's fairly clear that the early items were pre-owned in one way or another. So we can extrapolate from that that the wealth and luxury that comes with industry and trade was pretty much non-existent during this period in time for this community. Now, the status of the refugees is hard to determine because, well, you kind of have to look at items to figure out status. But how do you know where the items came from? I mean, maybe they're family heirlooms and these were high-status people, but they could have just as easily been salvaged. So could this community have been built out of survivors who had something to offer without regard to status? Just a ragtag organization? It's possible. Though old habits die hard, and even if status was briefly abandoned in order to survive, it probably returned pretty quickly. And considering that Ambrosius Aurelianus apparently had an elite lineage, we have indications that even in the chaos of the era, class level might have played some role in how remaining communities were organized. But ultimately, we just don't know. It's still fun to think about, though. Anyway, what we do know is that a community was forming in the shadow of their ancient past. And from the scant records we have, this doesn't seem to be particularly rare. So by looking at what happened at Cadbury Hill, we might be able to get a rough sketch of what other communities were going through as well. And this community was building and developing. As I mentioned earlier, they refortified their walls with salvaged Roman stone. But within a generation, they were also building timber buildings, a large timber hall, and even a timber and sod watchtower. So this wasn't just a minor settlement to weather the storm. This was a true community that was investing in their future by building and developing. And here's something that I find absolutely fascinating. The buildings that they were constructing weren't just the rectangular style buildings that we've become so accustomed to when talking about the Romano-British era. They were also building circular buildings that are quite reminiscent to the Iron Age roundhouses from their Celtic past. You might be tempted to declare this an unequivocal step backwards, and there are plenty of good arguments to support that. It does reflect an abandonment of certain forms of technology, after all. 
But using local resources and designing buildings to better withstand the local weather did make a certain amount of sense. So was it a step backwards? Probably. But it was also a clever one given the available resources and the climate of Britain. It just would have been nice if they also installed hippocausts. Something else interesting was occurring at around this same time. Jewelry was now being produced. Now that suggests that there was enough surplus or enough trade to support the existence of craftsmen. And we do know that there was trade between some of the communities in the south and the Mediterranean in the late 5th and mid-6th century. And there have been some artifacts that have been found that suggest that Cadbury Hill was indeed trading with the Mediterranean. Now what were they trading in? It might have been jewelry, but it's much more likely that they were trading tin. Tin is a common metal in the south, but it's not necessarily common the world over, and it's necessary for the creation of bronze. So there was definitely a market for tin, and the people at Cadbury Hill might have been capitalizing on that. Now something to keep in mind is that the finds indicate that this was occurring during and after the period when Ambrosius and others, and maybe even Arthur, were fighting against the Saxons. The thought of a town trading with Byzantium and others during an area that we're told was racked with wars and invasions seems jarring, but don't forget that we've also been told of decadence and excess. And it's very unlikely that circumstances were black and white. There was probably a mix of violence, decadence, and unrest. But while it might have been decadent for the time, it wasn't a return to the villa lifestyle of their Romanized ancestors. But in some ways, this was probably a nice way to stay reconnected to their past and reinforce their superiority over the invading barbarians. Sure, they might have left their towns behind and no longer lived in tile-roofed residences, but they could still eat on Roman tableware and drink Greek wine. Now, we don't know what happened to cause the site to be abandoned, but by the late 6th or sometime in the 7th century, Cadbury Hill was no longer used. And if this was the stronghold of the warlord referenced by Gildas, who defeated the Saxons at Mount Baton, it's possible that when the Saxons returned, they came back with a vengeance and the community wisely dispersed, or were captured, or were killed. It's hard to say. But even in the middle of what appears from Gildas to be some of the most distressing days of the migration period, it looks like you have pockets of Romanized Britons struggling to hold on, while also resurrecting their ancient customs. It's a fascinating look into who we were and how ingrained both the ancient Celtic culture as well as the Romanization that had followed had become. And it wasn't just scrappy communities retaking ancient sites. There were also military sites that remained occupied following the withdrawal of Rome and the uncertain times that followed. Up in the north, we have the site of Bertuswald, which has a very different story to share with us. Here we have a Roman fort from the 2nd century built along Hadrian's Wall. As you might remember, in the late occupation period, Rome was looting the island of its garrisons to fight external and internal wars on the continent. And whatever garrison stayed behind at Bertuswald would have been small and unpaid. Not only that, but they probably weren't Roman soldiers the way we think of them. They were probably local recruits who were brought into the service while they were still adolescents. At first, their payment might have come from the local community, but that wouldn't last too long. Things were changing rapidly for them as Rome withdrew, just like for the rest of Britannia. Their granaries, once full, were becoming abandoned and quarried for more pressing construction projects, and one of them was converted into a living quarter. It doesn't sound like the nicest of quarters to stay in, does it? 
But given the value of the items found within it, it's possible that this was a residence for a high-status individual within the community. And this small garrison had the added problem of being right on the border, facing off with an adversary that held quite the grudge against them, and for good reason. And then Rome withdrew from Britannia. Great. It's not too hard to imagine that some of these local soldiers refused to join the war on the continent, or those already in the service found a way to flee and return home following Rome's abandonment of Britannia. After all, there was family that would need protection. But however it happened, the fort remained occupied. The soldiers probably married local girls, and they prepared their sons to take up the family profession. At first, things might have continued along the same path as before, but over time the garrison probably realized that they would need to adapt in order to survive. Within a generation, buildings were falling into disrepair and having to be abandoned or be repaired with local materials. And by that I mean they would have had to have been repaired with timber, thatch, and the like. Or they would have to salvage usable stone from other structures. By the time that Cadbury was being occupied, the garrison here was dismantling its walls and building new structures entirely out of timber, including a hall that was placed on top of the Roman road. Like, right on top of it. So if you walked up the road and entered through the gate, the first thing you would see is this gigantic hall. That sounds to me like it was either a major center of activity or the residence of a local strongman or warlord, you know? And interestingly, the pollen records of the area seem to indicate that the agricultural nature of the surrounding area was maintained during much of the time that Berthuswald was occupied following the withdrawal of Rome. And actually, it only started to give way in the 6th century, which is only shortly before the fort itself was abandoned. Now, one reason the garrison might have dissolved is the fact that there isn't any indication that Berthuswald had any sort of trade or industry to keep the community going. A community without any real income has a hard road ahead of it. And that would be without it being on a frontier and facing off with a rather grouchy neighbor. So Berthuswald had it pretty tough. So sometime in the 6th century, it dissolved and vanished. Now, there were also towns that tried to hold on to their land and weather the storm. Rexeter was one of these towns. And there are signs that even as Rome was withdrawing from Britannia, it was still heavily populated and was still being maintained. However, by the mid-5th century, repairs halted and the old buildings that were so characteristic of the Roman public town were being demolished and replaced with wooden buildings that were becoming now common in Britain. Now this building program is significant because it was occurring at the same time that many other communities were abandoning the old Roman towns. And those towns were falling into disrepair. And this was certainly done by Romanized inhabitants based upon the measurements and the construction methods used. And these also weren't small buildings. Some of them were massive, and they would have required enormous amounts of collective labor to construct. One in particular appears to have been a huge residence in the style of a Roman villa. It makes you wonder who it was for. Was there a warlord or a strongman who lived in it? Was there a holy man or a bishop? After all, there are indications that Rexeter might have been a Christian community at this time, judging on a few bits of archaeological evidence and the placement of St. Andrew's Church. So it's hard to say for sure who commanded so much respect in the community and managed to marshal so many resources on a construction program. But it certainly is impressive. And then it was abandoned in the late 7th or early 8th century. For reasons we're not sure of. But isn't this all interesting? 
Here we have three communities that were present in largely the same time, but dealing with the chaos of the migration period in very different ways. One retreated to the defenses of their ancestors and even built timber roundhouses similar to the ancient Celts. Another continued to hold a military installation and quite possibly tended the surrounding lands and stayed loyal to their duty and the local population long after the nation that they served had collapsed. And another community held and developed a public town while other towns were abandoned and fell into decay. Amidst all these tales of invasions and battles, it's important to remember these communities. When we talk about the culture that grew out of this period, it's also important to remember the desperation that led to these outposts and the chaos that must have been a part of the migration period. But also, how some of these communities still remained in contact with the rest of the world. It's always tempting to think of history as black and white, especially when there are very few sources to rely upon. But my view is that the story of humanity is gray and deeply personal. There might be themes, but people are people, and the things that they do are rarely uniform. And here, with these three communities living in the middle of a major cultural shift on the island, we can see how unique the actions and responses of groups of people can be. And hopefully this helps you reconnect to the people who were holding on to the culture that dominated our first season and would soon be adopting the Germanic customs that we've been discussing in our second season. This story is about the British people, and they are still here. They're just adapting, just like any of us would do. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash britishhistory, or you can go over to Twitter. Just head over to at British Podcast, and you can also join us at the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum. All right, thanks for listening.